speaker to take his place at the head of the room. I would like to welcome you to the eighth and final session of the Hillary Term Middle East Center Seminar. As you know, we've been tracing the state of Egypt and the state of Palestine in the course of these eight weeks. And we finish tonight with a final summary on the state of Palestine from one of Palestine's most distinguished diplomats and a very dear personal friend and friend of this Middle East Center. My own history with Afif goes right back to my graduate school days when he came to speak as a postdoc at Harvard and was a visiting scholar at the Center for International Affairs where I got lessons of the meaning of engagement and politics just watching him interrogate the late Eli Kaduri over what it meant to give an endorsement to a book that perhaps did not deserve the endorsement. The late Joan Peters would understand exactly what I was referring to. But it's really in his commitment to pursuing the justice of the cause of Palestine as a diplomat that Afif Safiye has made his most lasting contributions. He served in a number of capacities to the Holy See and to various European states, but it was his time here as a Palestinian ambassador to London followed by his posting to Washington, where really Afif broke important new ground and taking the Palestinian message to an American public that simply hadn't heard it said that way. And then following Washington to move on to Moscow, I think in terms of the way in which he has served his country, few can match these three postings for the timing and the influence that he brought to the job and for the seriousness of engagement with each of those host countries, knowing how to address the audience in Britain, in the United States, and in Russia in a way which really served to advance the cause of Palestine. God knows it needed that advancement. It has not been an easy job, and in his many times in this room, we really have had assessments from Afif at some of the hardest and most difficult turning points in recent Palestinian history. I still remember when you came to speak to us on what the Declaration of Principles meant for you. The Gaza-Jericho First Agreement was certainly a moment where you began to question the direction of Palestinian politics. But I think it's very typical of you, Afif, that you never let your personal feelings get in the way of serving your country, and that you continue to act as the very finest diplomat of the Palestinian Authority, even when you disagreed with the way it went about trying to pursue the two-state solution. The title you have given us tonight is a rerun of a title you gave us a lecture 11 years ago. And I would say that that in itself makes tonight a historic occasion. But there's one more reason why tonight is a historic occasion. And for those of you who stay right to the end, I will reveal what makes tonight a little different from any other night. <laughs> <laughs> Leaving you on that hook, let me hand the floor over to our dear friend and most illustrious speaker, Afif Safi. Thank you, Professor Rogan. You know how much Crystal and I, we value your friendship. When I'm invited a second time to the same uh, institution, I'm reminded always of George Bernard Shaw, who once wrote a letter to Churchill, Winston Churchill, telling him, enclosed you will find two tickets for the first evening of my new play. You can bring a friend if you still have one. <laughs> to which Churchill immediately answered by saying, thank you very much. I cannot make it the first evening. I'll come the second evening if there is still one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I'm so happy to have been re-invited to this St. Anthony's College and to see so many friends among you, the audience. And you said Ambassador Safie. There was a joke very fashionable in the London diplomatic circuit some 25 years ago which said, what's the difference between an ambassador and a camel? And the answer was that a camel could work for 10 days without drinking, while an ambassador could drink for 10 days without <laughs> working. And uh, rest assured, I am closer to a moderately drinking camel. <laughs> As Eugene told you, 11 years ago, I gave a lecture in the center titled, Which Way is Forward? Question. 
And yesterday I reread it and I said to myself, very little has changed and I wouldn't change any of my remarks said then. Now much has happened since then. What has happened since then? There was the death or assassination of Yasser Arafat. Mm -hmm. On the Palestinian level, there was the smooth transition from the Arafat era to Abu Mazen. The elections of 2005 were competitive elections with seven candidates. Mahmoud Abbas won with 63% of the votes. In 2006, there were parliamentary elections. And as you know, the movement to which I belong, Fateh, lost the election, not overwhelmingly. It was 44 against 42%. And then my analysis was that Fateh succeeded in those elections to defeat itself. What were the burdens and handicaps Fateh entered the elections with in 2006? I believe threefold. One, there was very little change in political personnel from the 60s until those elections. And in politics, there is always a sense of boredom, déjà vu, and a desire for change. And this results always in the erosion of one's electoral chances. The second factor, Eugene, was the reputation and the reality of corruption. And the reality, the reputation was much more devastating than the reality, and this also is damaging for one, one's electoral chances. The third factor was the way Fatih was unaccustomed to face a competitor of the size of Hamas. Mm -hmm. During the PLO era, all the other factions were tiny compared to Fatih, and Fatih never had to compete with a big grassroots movement. So they could afford not to reconcile internal democracy with external discipline. And if a few were unhappy with the official candidates, they would run as independents and still win also. This time there was a serious competitor in Hamas, which took advantage of the fact that Fatih didn't succeed to reconcile internal democracy with external discipline. And Fatih was not yet then, in a way, accustomed to live without Arafat. I remember when we made the memorial service for Yasser Arafat in London, I said I'm reminded by Max Weber, who had a model of his own on the issue of leadership and legitimacy. Max Weber said there are three phases in, on the issue of legitimacy and leadership. The traditional phase, the charismatic phase and the institutional phase. And I said this model of Max Weber applies perfectly on the Palestinian situation. Up to 48, we had traditional leadership, meaning the aristocratic prominent families in urban centers with their web of uh, alliances and relations in the rural areas, the Husseinis, Nashashibis, etc. Then we had the Arafat era, which was the charismatic era. And I said, now with the departure of Yasser Arafat, we enter the institutional phase. And I was <coughs> hopeful that we will be rising up to the challenge of the institutional era. I'm very unsatisfied, and I'm known to have been extremely critical. And being an official and being that critical, you need some political audacity. I'm the one who has said on the record and paid the political price having a headache that we, the Palestinians, up to today, we neither have the authority we deserve, nor do we have the opposition we need. We have an authority we deserve better. We have oppositions we need better. And I always used to quote Helmut Schmidt, who apparently said, the biggest room on earth is the room for improvement. <laughs> and I believe on that level, there is a lot of room for improvement. And I remember once, yeah, Eugene, in America, a Palestinian detractor of the errors of the PLO stood up and flagellated me. And uh, in my answer to him, I said, I always believe the PLO is at the same time an idea and an institution. I'm much more comfortable representing the idea. And I said, the idea is stronger than the institution. The idea is immortal. If a few thousands work in the institution, the 11 million Palestinians are the powerful vehicles of the idea. So, ladies and gentlemen, on the Palestinian level, 
Unfortunately, since 2006, we have witnessed what was then the policy adopted by America on the instigation of Israel of boycotting, sanctioning, ghettoizing, quarantinizing Hamas. And I was then the ambassador in Washington, and I made my personal and professional life uncomfortable by telling the Americans privately and publicly, officially and unofficially, that for them this was the test between whether they were in favor of democracy or docility. And I said, one has to be graceful in a democracy. Winners and losers have to behave gracefully. And I always said, democracy for me is made of four components. It's constitutional pluralism, the rule of the majority, the respect for the minority, and that the last election is not the last election. And I was telling American audiences, including the officials, that there is a school of thought here in America to which I do not fully adhere, which says that maybe hardliners are the best equipped to be peacemakers. Only a Nixon could go to China. <coughs> Only a Begin could ratify an agreement with Sadat. Only a Sharon could withdraw out of Gaza. And I said, why don't the proponents of those, this school of thought also say, maybe a peace process which involves also Hamas has much more of a success to be conclusive, blah, blah, blah. And uh, to those who were saying <coughs> this election and its result is a blow to the peace process. Mm -hmm. My answer was constantly to say, which peace process? On the contrary, or contraire, the election of Hamas may be the, one of the results of the absence of a convincing peace process. So, ladies and gentlemen, we had since then a fracture in the Palestinian political system, the polity. And I believe up to today, we are still struggling to repair the damaged institutional framework. I believe that within Hamas, which no one should see as a monolithic movement, there is a modernist, democratic, pragmatic school of thought that I'm in touch with and I would like us all to encourage. There are other schools of thought. And I believe Hamas had, during the last few years, a tormenting dilemma. Should we, Hamas, maintain our monopoly of power in Gaza, or should we go towards reconciliation that might end up with elections, which might end up with coalition politics, where we might be the junior partner, but we will have power sharing in both the West Bank and Gaza as a junior partner. And that was the dilemma. Monopoly of power in Gaza, or power sharing in both the West Bank and Gaza, but as a junior partner. And I believe up to now Hamas did not solve that dilemma. And it's very unfortunate. For example, today, I'm taking a shortcut, they are aware that all the pledges of the international community to help reconstruct Gaza will not start occurring unless the presidential guard and the authorities' uh, guards will be at the entry points of Eretz and mainly in Rafah. And being reluctant to relinquish that control is prohibiting the free flow of external aid for the reconstruction of Gaza. In my camp, political camp, yes, there are some who are unenthusiastic to work seriously for reconciliation, because they believe this is a headache that will complicate further our relations with the Americans and with the Israelis. I do not share the point of view of this uh, school of thought. I believe we should, with great determination, work into repairing the political system. Reconciliation is a historical necessity. The sooner, the better. And I'm angry that not everybody feels the same urgency around this issue. We haven't had presidential elections for the last 10 years. We haven't had parliamentary elections for the last 10 years. And I believe we need to have them. And if the split continues, some might think that it would be wise to have presidential and legislative elections only in the West Bank, an opinion I do not share because it would be problematic and extremely controversial. Why? Because the two million and a half in the West Bank are hardly 20-25% of the Palestinian people. And if we only have them in the West Bank, it means that we don't have the reconciliation with Hamas and 
Gaza is not yet within the political system, which means that Hamas in the West Bank will also boycott. So not only will those elections involve 20-25% of the Palestinian people globally, but also it will not involve over 65 to 70% of the electorate in the West Bank. So I can imagine the brouhaha and the headache we will be having about the <coughs> representative nature of its results. So we are in a corner and I hope that we will show political maturity. But these days I personally am worried about what I call some suicidal inclinations within the Palestinian society. Avi, I always said that uh, Israeli society is a traumatized society, but also traumatizing. And we too are becoming a traumatized society that is often having irrational collective responses to challenges and opportunities. And we have some suicidal, politically suicidal propensities that we need to cope with. That was the Palestinian side telegraphically. The Israeli arena, you are all following that they will be having elections again for uh, the Knesset on the 17th of March. I, for one, have always said that as abominable as Netanyahu can be, we don't have many reasons to be enamored with the Israeli Labour Party. I have said since the 80s to Israeli interlocutors, and at one, one moment I used to know 40 Knesset members out of the 120, that it's labor that made Palestine unlivable to us Palestinians. What Likud usually does is making Israel unlivable to many Jews. What do I mean by all that? What I mean is that the ethnic cleansing of 1948, the Suez War of 56, the initiative for the war on 67, the unilateral unrecognized annexation of East Jerusalem, the beginning of settlement building, the idea for the wall of shame, the separation security barrier, all this was labor, 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 labor. And analysis and facts would tell you that the two years of Barak 99-2001, the settlement acceleration was faster than the three years of Netanyahu that preceded. So I'm just telling you that. So. And you've heard probably the policy proclamations of the two major coalitions, the Netanyahu and uh, those wh whom he cultivates as his coalition partners, but also the Zionist Union. Their proclamations are very unappetizing. Herzog believes that Jerusalem is not negotiable and uh, the settlement blocks remain under. Israeli sovereignty. He has not pronounced himself to my knowledge, but that's already a statement about the Jordan Valley, mm -hmm. which I'm sure he would like also to swallow en passant. Appetizing. This brings me to my piece de resistance, mon plat de resistance, which is the necessity for us Palestinians to internationalize the process. I, for one, since years I have said mm -hmm that the flaws of the peace process, the way it was initiated by Madrid, then mainly Oslo, was that too much was left to the local belligerent parties to sort it out, leaving us, the Palestinians, at the mercy of an, a merciless balance of power. And the Israelis were tempted to have a diplomatic outcome that reflects Israeli intransigence, the American instinctive alignment on the Israeli preference, Russian decline, European abdication, Arab impotence, Raghid, and what they hope to be Palestinian resignation. saint it doesn't work that way. And I used to tell Israelis, don't confuse our realism for resignation. And when I say our realism, Eugene, I mean the following. We are the Jews of the Israelis today. And I've always believed that a Palestinian state is not only our right, Tony. It's the duty and the obligation of Jews around the world and of Israelis in particular, because them, they, more than anybody else in the world, know the price we have had to pay individually, collectively, <coughs> so that Israel is created. So it's our right, but their duty. And I've always said that the diplomatic outcome should not be the reflection of the balance of power if we want to solve problems with a durability beyond the immediate future. And I believe the flow of the peace process, the way it was orchestrated and choreographed, 
was that too much was left to the local belligerent parties to sort it out. And the international community was, in a way, rendered ineffectual and impotent, a facilitator that uh, did not often intervene in a very significant, powerful way. How, one does assess, well, how does one assess the last 20, 22 years? I believe, one, the years of theoretical peacemaking were years of the expansion of occupation and not the withdrawal of occupation. One has to admit. Mm -hmm. Number two, today the diplomatic impasse is not the result of the Arab rejection of Israeli existence, but the impasse today is the result of the Israeli rejection of Arab acceptance. Mm -hmm. Why? Because Israel does not want to comply with the territorial prerequisite. And what's the territorial prerequisite? The Arab peace plan. The Arab peace plan is simple. If Israel withdraws out of its 67 expansion, we, the Arabs, are ready to recognize it in its pre-67 existence. It's the expansion in exchange for recognition of the existence, as simple as that. Mm -hmm. And the diplomatic impasse today is the result of not Arab rejection of Israeli existence, but Israeli rejection of Arab acceptance because of their reluctance to comply with the territorial prerequisite. Now, one has to admit that the quartet was created some 15 years ago, and we applauded, I among others. And the quartet ended up being a one-tet operation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you know, Dean Etchison on another issue is known to have said, I have seen many a partnership, but none was equal. So it was not a quartet with equal partners. And the Americans, each time they promise us pressure on the Israelis, it turns out, Eugene, that your country of origin has the political weight of Luxembourg, or even worse, <laughs> Liechtenstein. I, for one, I was extremely excited to see Obama in the White House. I was often, it's a pity, I coincided in my pas passage in Washington with the neoconservative and Bush son and Obama. I would be questioned and interrogated in every etape of my work. What do you think of Obama? And I would answer usually, you know, as a foreign diplomat, I'm supposed to exercise self-restraint, but my wife <laughs> believes that... <laughs> but my wife believes that he is the candidate who can, re who can reconcile America with itself and America with the world. And he is reawakening American idealism. And by the way, I like America, like many Palestinians. Uh, I grew up, yeah, part of my political culture is, is uh, Hollywood and the American films, which are not all right wing, etc. So we, 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 we liked the American music. We liked that. And let me tell you, when I was in America, I always would say from lecture to lecture, very few Americans know that the first country that recognized American independence is not France, who, yes, deployed Lafayette, and he was decisive on the theater of battle, but it was an Arab country, Morocco, that was the first to recognize the USA, the newly created state, through a proclamation of unilateral independence, by the way. And I would tell the American audience, and I would tell American audiences, very few Palestinians know that in 1918-1919, when we understood, or our ancestors understood, that we were not going to get the independence we were promised, but we will get a foreign mandate, Eugene, many Palestinians who were aware interna internationally, would have preferred an American mandate rather than a British mandate. Why? For a variety of reasons. One, your anti-colonial history, that's one, to President Wilson, who had arrived in the Versailles conference carrying his 14 principles, the 14th of them being the right to self-determination. And I remember the Zionists then answered, God gave us only 10 commandments and here is Wilson. <laughs> now concerning your anti-colonial history, in America, anti-British jokes were very fashionable. Like one of them I used abundantly, mea culpa. <laughs> was that, do you know, Leila, why 
why <laughs> Britain had an empire from where the sun never set. It's because God never trusted them in the dark. <laughs> but I, I said it innocently. I promise you, I'll try to a career in as a stand-up comedian once I <laughs> take my... So, America. I personally believe, and I have believed that since I was a young political militant, that for this conflict, what we need is a sort of elegantly imposed solution on both sides. And I, I was fascinated when I was a student by Le General de Gaulle. I don't know if, Avi, you, you share the same fascination. De Gaulle was a statesman like they make them no more. And de Gaulle, after 67, called for what he then announced as la concertation à quatre, meaning the coordination <coughs> of the major four powers Popular China was not yet in the Security Council. And his opinion was that those four major powers, the USA, the USSR, France, and Britain, would meet, discuss what should be the content and the contours of a possible desirable peace, and signal to the local actors what the world expects from them. Now, unfortunately, this idea of his never really took off the ground. I think there were a couple of meetings in New York by the permanent representatives of those four countries to the UN, and that was it. Why? Because then, those of us of my age would remember, I was 17 then, America was not unhappy with the Israeli military victory. It compensated the humiliations of Vietnam. The Soviets, short-sighted like they frequently could be, didn't prefer the bipolar configuration and didn't see why they should give equal status to Britain and France. The British were unexcited because the idea was French to begin with. <laughs> and since then, Eugene, we have a durable process instead of the lasting permanent peace we all aspire for. I will not concede from you. I am in favor of an elegantly imposed solution by the international community on both parties. And everybody who is concerned with this idea, with this issue, knows what is the possible desirable agreement. We don't need to be diplomatic genius, and we don't use all the terminology used for Barack, innovative, creative, imaginative, daring, audacious. We know what is that. All we need is implementation. And I always said what we need is pressure and not a process now. And I used to joke by saying if there was a political or if there were a political will, what was occupied in six days can also be evacuated in six days so that the Israelis can rest on the seventh and we can engage on the fascinating journey of state building and economic recovery. What's the obstacle to this international consensus? And there is an international consensus being operational. Mm. And let me tell you, all our diplomatic Palestinian endeavors the last three years was deliberately plagiarizing UN resolutions that successive American administrations had voted upon. All our resolutions that were submitted to the UN are made up of passages and paragraphs that the American successive administrations have voted positively upon in the UN. Again, no innovative, no imaginary, just... And yet those same resolutions were the ones that were vetoed by the most progressive, open-minded American administration, the Obama administration, that would torpedo and sabotage them by shielding Israel from any etc. Why is that? I, for one, I believe that the study of Israeli-American relations is the topic that needs further exploration today. And I've been, we have been on our side, we the Palestinians, and that's a major grievance I have, that each time we witness serious tensions among the American administration and an Israeli government, we the Palestinians, we the Arabs are incapable of capitalizing constructively on it. I'm not in favor of Machiavellic politics, it's silly it's short term, but we are incapable of capitalizing on it. There is a simplistic approach that uh, America is hopeless, America is useless, America is destined to be always instinctively in the Israeli side. I don't believe that. I believe that our battle for winning Washington is a winnable battle and we have not been waging it correctly. During the three years we spent, Crystal and I, 
And I say Christian and I because it was really Christian burden sharing with me superbly during those years. The message, yeah, Eugene, that we were carrying from city to city, from state to state, was the following. America is a fascinating country. It's a nation of nations. It's the world of miniature. And today we live in a unipolar, monopolar world, and I believe today we live in it. Yes, America has been diminished, etc., but it was still we are in a unipolar, monopolar world. And in a unipolar, monopolar world, the policy of non-alignment is not a choice for third world countries like it used to be in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, when we had the superpower rivalry where we in the third world were afraid of superpower collision or collusion. Mm. Sometimes we were afraid of the collision, sometimes we were afraid of the collusion. Today we are in a monopolar, unipolar system and America is a nation of nations, the world of miniature. When America stupidly aligns itself constantly on one belligerent party in a regional conflict, not only does America alienate all the other parties in the conflict, but it is offending and alienating and ghettoizing a factor and part of its own domestic national fabric. Yes, there are 6 million Jews in America, and they are not monolithic, but there are 500, 600,000 Palestinians, 4 million Arabs, 8 million, 9 million uh, Muslims, and etc., etc. And when America aligns itself on Israel, with its territorial appetite, etc. Not only is it antagonizing all the others, but it's offending part of its own domestic national fabric. Those who believe that their country of adoption is insensitive to the ordeal and the suffering of their countries of origin. So, and then I used to say, Eugene, I believe there is not one America, there are two Americas. And this, I'm not speaking of Republican America and Democratic America. There are two national uh, narratives, there are two collective memories, there are two Americas. There is the America, yes, of the early settlers whose arrival almost resulted in the total annihilation of the native Americans. Yes, there is the America that had a sort of elast elastic vision of its own frontiers and expanded shamelessly at the detriment of Mexico. Yes, there is the America that institutionalized slavery, but also, yes, there is this America of the founding fathers that revolted against the colonial power. Yes, there is the America of Abraham Lincoln that took the difficult decision of waging a civil war, and I know how painful a civil war can be, in order to rid itself of slavery. And yes, there is the America of uh, Wilson that came to the Versailles Conference upholding the principle of self-determination. And yes, there is the America of Martin Luther King, and I have a dream that was shared beyond the oceans and in different continents. And that's the America, yeah, Alfred. Alfred is a pillar of the Palestinian-American community with universalist principles, by the way. We don't like, I don't like Palestinians who have a tribalistic inclination, just as I object to those who chose to be my enemies when they have the tribalistic reaction. We, he's a universalistic, universalistic person that I have great respect for. There is that other America that we should address and politically seduce. I've seen a variety of opinion polls recently. Opinion polls, as you all know, you are all solid intellectuals, much depends on the way the questions are formulated, etc. This is why some opinion polls give you some incompatible results. But one opinion poll that I have seen recently is that two-thirds of America wanted America to be neutral in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Another opinion poll showed that 29% were pro-Israeli and 2% were pro-Palestinian. But another poll showed that 65% of America wanted them to be more even-handed and neutral, etc., which is extremely encouraging. Now, dear friends, I said there are two Americas, and I can understand that the America that belongs to the tradition of this elastic expansion at the detriment of Mexico 
will feel comfortable and will speak of shared values with the Israeli annexationists. Those who don't care a damn about uh, the treatment reserved to the Red Indians and the reservations in, in which they were placated, yes, would applaud settlers moving into the West Bank, etc. They will have no sympathy and no sensitivity. But there is another America that feels uncomfortable, even with its own history. And maybe this is why it's difficult for many Americans to become pro-Palestinian, because there is a sort of internal introspection and some critical attitude vis-a-vis -vis one's own national itinerary. Now, in the study of American-Israeli relations, there are two schools of thought. There are those who believe that we witness an American Israel, and those who believe we witness an Israeli America. Who decides what and who is the dog and who is the tail? To put it in vulgar terms, that were put in a variety of scholarly books. I, and if you have time to have a look, and I think the library would have a copy, I produced a book with a variety of lectures, the peace process from breakthrough to breakdown. In 2002, Rusi, which is a think tank in London close to the Defense Ministry, having had several pro-Israelis express themselves, invited me to write an article in their publication. And I wrote an article speaking of Rome and its belligerent Sparta. Chomsky, for example, for whom I have great respect, believes that America is the contemporary Rome and Israel it's, is its belligerent Sparta. I believe this analysis was valid until 67, 73 à la rigueur. Mm -hmm. But I believe beyond those years, it's no more valid. On the contrary, every military conflagration in which the Americans were involved, they would ask the Israelis to be as discreet as possible and not to be very visible. Mm -hmm. Am I right? But prior to that, yes, when the policy was the containment of the Soviet Union, etc., Israel was seen as the belligerent Sparta for the contemporary Rome. Today, I believe, and I said that to my, my American interlocutors, endearing myself, by the way, by saying, seen through Palestinian and Arab eyes, your American foreign policy often looks like a subcontract in the Israeli strategy. And you would be surprised, Ravid. I was talking at one moment with Brent Scrocroft, who used to be the national security advisor of Bush the father. I was in my late 40s, he was, or early 50s, and he was in his 80s. And I started by saying, Mr. Scrocroft, I hope not to, I don't intend to offend you, but seen through my eyes, American policy seems to be a subcontract of Israeli strategy. And his answer with sadness in his face was, I, I don't, I'm not offended. Which is in diplomatic mm. terms meaning I don't, totally disagree with you, because he was uncomfortable with Bush's son policy. I personally believe, unfortunately, that today, in spite of all the blah, blah, blah in the region, those who are defying the American interest and American decision-making are neither the Iranians, nor the Turks, nor the, the Syria and Bashar al-Assad, nor we, the Palestinians, Fatih and Hamas included, but mainly Netanyahu. Netanyahu's policy and his school of thought in Israeli politics is to maintain America, the Western world, the Judeo-Christian world, on a collision course with the Arab Islamic world. Mm -hmm. And they are succeeding. Mm -hmm. And many in the Arab world are falling into that trap because there is such frustration, exasperation, irritation, a sense of impotence, etc., which culminates into one playing in the hands of the other. And I believe the Israeli policy is how to maintain America on a collision course with the Arab Islamic world. And they are succeeding, and we are failing there. And I, as a militant and as a diplomat, I take responsibility, partial responsibility for that failure. I believe in America, and many officials have said it, more from the Defense Department or the Pentagon than from Congress. Why? Because I believe in America, Eugene, uh, the military are freer in the expression of their opinions in the sense that they are not subjected to elections and mm -hmm. fundraising. 
And I remember Robert Gates, mm -hmm. former, former defense secretary, saying in Brookings, Israel is a very ungrateful ally. And I have seen and heard many American officials say, we, America, we are committed for Israel's existence, but we are not committed for Israel's expansion. And you are rational people. In Israel, there is a debate on the wisdom, sagacity, or legality of keeping the hilltops of the West Bank. But what is America's interest in Israel keeping the hilltops of the West Bank? They who have to think in global terms. None whatsoever. Yet they are supposed to protect, fund, and shield Israel in the UN and fund it so that Israel is keeping the hilltops and the valleys of the West Bank. So I believe, my friends, that it's not we, the Palestinians, that need one further proclamation of independence. I believe that it's America that deserves and needs a proclamation of independence in policy making. And let me tell you, the spectacle of Netanyahu for the third time in Congress was for many devastating. Eugene, I have often repeated that you say in America, Israel is our only ally in the Middle East. But before Israel, America didn't have any enemies in the Middle East. Anyway, one has not, does not necessarily need to be a Marxist to have some dialectic uh, by, by, uh, approaches by reverse, and I'm not a Marxist, by the way, reversing all the equations and assertions, etc. Before, Israel is our only ally, but before Israel, you had no, no enemies. <laughs> put, let's put to ourselves courageously some serious questions. And Yuri Avneri, for whom I have great respect, uh, Avi, and I'm sure you share that opinion, wrote during the second uh, appearance of Netanyahu in Congress two, three years ago, he said, it reminds me of the Stalinist era parliament, with the difference that this time the parliamentarians were not standing every time they heard a platitude for a standing ovation for the local dictator, but for a foreign dignitary that was passing. And it was really a lamentable spectacle. And I remember when we were still students, and I was always a Democrat, by the way. When I was a student, it was fashionable to be a Maoist, a Trotskyist, etc. Mm. And uh, I always went a contre-courant. I was a social democrat then, and I'm still a social democrat today. I thought then, when I was 17, 18, 19, that the major handicap for me as an Arab Democrat was the malfunctioning, misfunctioning of the American political system concerning decision-making concerning the Middle East. It was a major handicap, because each time I would invoke Winston Churchill that democracy is the worst political system at the exception of all the others, and everybody would tell me, and you see what's happening in Washington. And so that was the major handicap, and it's not to be compensated by the deployment of American troops in the region. It should be compensated by a change of American mechanisms of policy making. My friends, I could continue endlessly, and I <laughs> I, I'm known to ramble and to divagate. And I told uh, Eugene that having aged 11 years since our last encounter here, I was incapable of the same concentrated attention and focus and the density of my delivery. I hope I didn't get on your nerves. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed my humor. But you're not, you're not stopping here, actually. No. Just I as you're winding down, I'm going to put one more thing to your speech please. before you're allowed to finish, mm -hmm. which is that you've been so focused on the United States yes. to the exclusion of Europe. And I think to engage with the discussion we've been having this term, it's very important for you to give us your reflections yeah. Yeah. on what the recent debates in yeah. the national parliaments of Europe no, no, and you. in the European Parliament on recognizing Palestinian statehood thank you, sir. holds for a European alternative to even the nice America of the Founding Fathers, Lincoln, Wilson, mm -hmm, Martin Luther mm -hmm, King, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that you are hoping yet to seduce. It sounds to me as though in the parliaments of Europe, you have more natural allies. Could yeah. you give us your perspective yeah. on what those bits mean? And then I'll let you sit down. No, no, no my friend. I'm, I'm your consenting victim. <laughs> Thank you, Afi. Uh, no, it's, it's a very important issue. And by the way, 
not only my wife is Belgian, my daughters are Euro, -Belg uh, Euro Arabs, etc. I carry a Belgian nationality and uh, when I was denied family reunification in Jerusalem in agreement with Arafat, I only kept my Belgian passport so that I could go into Jerusalem and out when I needed as a Belgian tourist mm -hmm. because it's easier to be Belgian rather than Palestinian in Palestine. So I'm a very important issue. I did not address it because I felt that in the four lectures that were given on uh, that two or three were focused on we the European the dimension. Let I often, I often, I often, with talking to European officials, would tell them, look, my friends, the Oslo back channel, mm. if it hasn't put yet Palestine fully on the map, it has put Norway on the map. <laughs> and, I was offer, and I was offering this as an, as an incentive for Europe to play it. And I used to say, for the last 30 years, Europe is still an actor in search for a role, and we in the Middle East, we have a role in search for an actor. If we could merge the two, we will all live less unhappily ever after. Yes, I encourage every European parliament to vote for the necessity of recognition of Palestinian statehood. And I believe that in Europe, we have won the battle for public opinion, and contrary to what was happening in 73 after the October War of 1973 and the oil crisis, mm -hmm. where the governmental positions in Europe were in advance vis-a-vis -vis the maturation of public opinion, today in Europe public opinion is more advanced than the governmental position. Mm -hmm. And this is why I'm very encouraged that there will be improvement on governmental policy in the coming months, etc. This being said, my friend, I will not concede from you as a Europhile, European, cosmopolitan, universalistic Palestinian, I used to be much more comfortable with the Europe of the 15th than I am with the Europe of the 28th. And you remember, Eugene, that there was a debate in Europe about the broadening or the deepening of That's Europe, right. and those who were not in favor of deepening Europe were in favor of broadening it, which can result in the dilution mm -hmm. of the message. You know, the debate on foreign policy was, we Europeans should speak with one voice and have still something to say. <laughs> to tell you frankly, I am unhappy, and I say it as a Europhile, uh, I am unhappy with the Europe of, the, uh, Europe of the 28 in the sense that since they operate with the minimum uh, common denominator, etc., several countries, and only you need one or two, uh, reduce the common denominator and can paralyze, paralyze decision-making. And recently, for example, Germany, because of the historical burden, Czechia, for reasons I ignore, mm -hmm. Holland, which is partially now, which is today more equidistant, and we played our roles, having been there for three years mm -hmm. in the late 80s, um, but Czechia, for reasons I ignore, and Germany, for reasons obviously we, we all know about, have been lowering the common denominator. Mm -hmm. Often I have a tendency to look at Europe today, because I'm a realist, mm -hmm as a lobby in Washington. And I started by speaking of uh, grievances I had vis-a-vis -vis Obama, and uh, then I skipped it because I'm not reading. The three grievances we, I have vis-a-vis -vis Obama are the following. One, I believe Obama, five years, six years ago, was unaware of the change in the center of gravity of the American Jewish community. I believe a majority, a comfortable majority in the American Jewish community today is very uncomfortable with Israeli policies and with Netanyahu en personne. Mm -hmm. And they who grew accustomed to be in the forefront of civil rights, human rights, etc., for the last 50 years have been reduced into defending the indefendable mm -hmm. until now there is what I believe the beginning of a breaking point. And Obama arriving in power, but he is uncomfortable himself in Washington. He's a newcomer and an outsider, doesn't have a network of buddies, etc. He went back to the same old guys, the Dennis Ross, Martin Indyk, etc. Instead of seeking the new voices, I'm happy with the nomination of Robert Malley yeah. in the Security Council, by the way. Yeah. And I see that uh, Avi and Eugene agree. 
So he went back to the same old guys. But uh, he was unaware of the change in the center of gravity among the Jewish American community. The second grievance I have is that Obama thanks, contrary to his exasperating, irritating predecessor who was a unilateralist, you are either with me or against me and I will rename French fries Liberty (laughs) Fries, Obama was a multilateralist who did not use Europe enough to counterbalance domestic constraints placed on him. Mm-hmm. And maybe here Europe was too discreet and too it's modest by not assertively saying, we believe that this and this and should be done or else there'll be a deterioration, fragilization of the entire region, which we have been witnessing the last four years. And the third grievance against Obama is that he's not showing as much courage as those who voted for him six years ago, because you needed political courage in America too. So anyway, Obama did, uh, so Europe. Europe is, has been a payer and not a player so far, because the Israelis have relegated them only to this status. They could be a player if they are an assertive lobby in Washington by being vocal, telling American public opinion and the American decision maker that we in Europe, because of our history and our physical geographic proximity, we think we need to have a change of policy, a dynamic change of policy in this direction, and all the direction we speak about is known. So they don't need to be innovative. So yes, I might disappoint a few when I say Europe is only a lobby. But it can be a overpowering lobby in Washington and a useful lobby for a good American president who has been losing five of his battles against Netanyahu, who each time he lands in Washington says, I'm stronger than this man in Washington, and proves it. Mm. And proves it. Mm. So Obama needs Europe as a counter lobby. And Kissinger here had a an interesting sentence that America doesn't have interest, it has responsibilities. Mm -hmm. Good. So um, Europe can remind America of its responsibilities. Mm -hmm. Europe can remind Americans that the resolution being voted in the Security Council is made of paragraphs that American successive administrations in yonder years voted upon, blah, blah, blah. You know, all this better. So I'm sorry if I disappoint many Euro enthusiasts, as I am one of them, mm-hmm. Europe today in real politics, and there are some in our ranks that are not unhappy about a more agitated Russia and believe this is the be- re-beginning of bipolarity. I don't think so. They mm-hmm. see the size of the important economic importance of China as the beginning of multipolarity. I personally believe China is a regional player in geo strategic terms. And anyway, it's not Chinese dynamism that will make Israel change its policy. I believe a change of attitude by the American administration, and there is nothing wrong with now. I am an impatient political militant, (laughs) and I don't want to keep you hostages. I'm ready to answer any question. Thank you so much.